Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. I'm Tim White, Digital Editor, and this week I've been joined by Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor, and Hattie Williams, uh, News Reporter. We're going to kick off this week by looking at a story that you did, Hattie. Um, the headline is, Death of Cathedrals reports, quote, have been exaggerated. This is all about whether cathedrals are facing some kind of funding crisis. That's right. So um, uh, there was a story that appeared in The Guardian um, at the weekend, um, and it was based on comments made um, by uh, the Bishop of Stepney, the Right Reverend Adrian Newman, and he's the chair of a new cathedral's working group, which we've reported on before, and this was basically set up to um, uh, investigate the governance, management and general sort of maintenance of cathedrals. And so he spoke to The Guardian and um, made some comments which were interpreted as uh, meaning that half of the cathedrals uh, in England were at risk of closure. Um, So obviously there was quite a bit of media traction on this, um, but I spoke to him after this um, and he said um, quite clearly that his his comments had been exaggerated. So his original comment was, my finger in the wind estimate is that perhaps half of cathedrals are facing some significant financial challenges, although pretty much all of them are planning on how they're going to get through that. And then he since said, The national media love to call this a crisis, but that's not a word I'm applying to cathedrals. On the contrary, I'm struck by the committed and dedicated way in which cathedrals are responding. At any one time in living memory, a good number of cathedral chapters will have been wrestling with how to make their cathedrals financially sustainable. This shouldn't be news to anybody. Did you sense that he was irritated with the story, that he thought it was slightly mischievous? No, I don't think he was irritated, um, but I think he welcomed the opportunity to respond um, afterwards, so I was, I was pleased we were able to get hold of him. It kind of comes about in the background of there's been a handful of cathedrals that have been some significant financial concerns. Um, I think Peterborough Cathedral in recent months... Um, there was like a visitation by the bishop, which had some kind of strong words on its on fina- on the financial management there, and I think also in Exeter as well. That's right. Yeah, there's been a number of um, cases which have been quite widely reported in the media, um, but obviously uh, there are 42 cathedrals um, in the UK, and and we're talking about three or four here um, that have made headlines. So it was quite dramatic in in Peterborough in that it ended in ended with the um, dean resigning. Um, but in other cases, there have just been reports of um, overspending or not having um, enough money to carry out uh, maintenance and repairs which are needed. Um, and there was some criticism um, from the National Secular Society, um, which is perhaps unsurprising. Um, but they're concerned that uh, the government has spent, you know, quite a significant, you know, we're talking millions of pounds on the maintenance of cathedrals um, and. Uh, they're obviously not very happy about that. So, it's worth stressing, as cathedral deans always like to do, that they receive no regular funding from government or really much from the Central Church of England, do they? They are supposed to be largely self-sustaining. That's right, and I think that's um, part of the problem. Really, is I think the the governance is is sort of in question because they are very much left to their own devices. Um, One other thing that's worth mentioning here is that. Um, a lot of the deans are now being enrolled on these quote-unquote mini-MBA courses, which is part of the, the new training for senior leaders in the Church of England, which, which has come in through the Renewal and Reform project. Um, it's obviously much bigger than that, but I think some people would say that is that a tacit acceptance, perhaps, that the deans, through their the ordinary training as priests and then deans, weren't getting enough 
resources to, to handle the business of running a cathedral, which in some instances is actually quite a significant financial concern. Yeah, I think that's that's true. But again, uh, I think it's very easy to sweep cathedrals all into one pot. And I think um, there are deans um, and chapters that are very capable of managing cathedrals. Um, but uh, I think it's just been highlighted when there's been individual cases um, when management doesn't come naturally. Um, and, you know, in that in that respect, um, I don't think uh, MBAs are a bad idea um, because it is you know, it's a massive entry, it's a huge visitor attraction, um, they rely hugely on donations and so on. So Andrew Brown in his press column this week also reflects on the Guardian story. Mm. He raises the issue of funding and just says, I wonder what will happen if it comes to a standoff between the commissioners and parliament over repair bills for cathedrals. That's an interesting angle. Mm. Yes, it, could be, it would be fascinating, wouldn't it, if, if the church really does put its hands up and say, look, we can't fund these, these buildings anymore. Um, is the country prepared to let them fall into rack and ruin or would, would the government put its hand in its pocket? It's important to remember as well that a lot of the funding from cathedrals comes from uh, grants through heritage lottery um, funding and you obviously have to apply for those grants same as any other um, church building and those are um, available for all places of worship so it's not um, just cathedrals but they do get a huge proportion of that I think it was um, 40 million and uh, since 2014 um, which is a significant amount but if it's not enough well uh, I think that's uh, a difficult uh, difficult question to answer where to get the money from. And many people would say cathedrals have been one of the Church of England's big success stories of recent years and decades really with many people worshipping there on Sundays and during the week many yeah. many visitors. Absolutely, that's um, and that's exactly what um, uh, the Dean of Lichfield, uh, the very Reverend Adrian Dorber, um, pointed out to me this week. Um, he said that um, we mustn't forget that they cathedrals attract 11 million visitors um, every year, um, and he was trying to stress that that spirit of welcome is shouldn't change, um, and it shouldn't be undermined by very negative stories about their closure. Hattie, you've been talking to the World Vision Afghanistan country director, Jim Alexander, this week about Islamic State and, and the war in Afghanistan. What did he tell you? Well, that's right. I wanted to ask him um, what he thought about um, the US military's uh, decision to drop what they call a massive ordnance air blast, uh, MOAB, on a suspected stronghold of the IS in Nangara province this month. Um, and it was just interesting to get his perspective because he's been working on and off in Afghanistan for 40 years um, and he was quite firm in um, his opinion that uh, violence um, and bombing is not the answer. So he said um, that this particular case um, was a case of the Trump administration, what he called making a higher level statement about reasserting American military force in the world. He said this will not solve anything and can reinforce the platform the Taliban and ISIS have been using, that America has invaded and remains in Afghanistan for its own economic and political reasons, not for the good of the Afghan people. Um, although he, he did also say that Afghans themselves would, would you know, in his words, applaud the bombing um, because uh, the Taliban are a huge uh, threat in many areas and people do feel that a lot of the work and the progress that's been made in terms of um, education, women's empowerment um, and so on mm. may be undone if um, 
the Taliban reoccupy um, the currently unoccupied uh, provinces. You also spoke about the Women's Empowerment Programme that World Vision launched. That's right. So that was really the um, <laughs> supposed to be the main topic of our conversation. But um, he was telling me about uh, some of the work that they've been doing. He's uh, they run a, an education programme for five and six year old children to get them into school um, because. Um, there's a shortage at the moment of uh, female teachers, which is incredibly important in Afghanistan because a lot of families, he said, um, don't want their um, uh, young girls, when they reach the age of puberty, they don't want them to be taught uh, by a male teacher. Um, so that's one issue. Um, so and they also, take them out of school. That's right, exactly, yeah. And uh, another issue... Um, uh, related to that is that they take them out of school and then marry them off. You know, we're talking as as young as the age of twelve um, as a kind of solution to that, um, which comes with a whole range of um, health and psychological and social problems in itself. Um, so it's interesting to hear about that and some of the children that he'd met as well. Did he mention whether people on the ground that World Vision are working with can distinguish between the American aid workers? who are trying to build uh, a better Afghanistan and the American army or military, which is bombing other bits of Afghanistan? No, we didn't talk about that. They do work with a lot of American partners out there and they also get a lot of their um, funding from the US as well. And he was um, unsure when I spoke to him about the future of funding in Afghanistan um, from the United States, given the um, Trump administration. So there was some concern there, but I'm, I'm not sure about the um, military interaction. And bishops of the Episcopal Church in the United States have had a conference on gun violence. Tim, you spoke to one of the bishops who organised that, didn't you? I did. I spoke to um, Bishop Jeffrey Lee, who's the Bishop of Chicago, which is where the, the conference was held. It's by its network called Bishops United Against Gun Violence, um, which is now numbers more than 70 Episcopal bishops. And they held it in Chicago, he was said quite bluntly, because it's really the epicentre of a, a really concerning spike in, in gun violence, particularly among poorer and African-American communities. Um, he told me that from Good Friday to Easter Sunday alone, there were 45 shootings in the city of Chicago, um, which is something that he said bishops can't ignore. So they held this conference, which they called Unholy Trinity, which was looking at the intersection between gun violence, racism and poverty, and looking at not only at what kind of common sense, what he would call sensible gun legislation could we get passed, but also... Uh, delving deeper into some of the reasons why people in these poor urban communities in particular feel uh, the need to, to carry and use weapons on each other. You also asked him whether it was a risk for the church to get involved in such a highly charged political issue. How did he respond to that? We kind of responded in two ways. So he firstly said actually the kind of gun reform they're calling for is actually polling suggests widely popular. So one of the top of the list of what they would like to see would be universal background checks on anyone who buys a gun. Um, and he says something like 80% of American citizens support that across party lines and across various different states. And it's actually only, he didn't say, but the implication was it's only a small number of, of Second Amendment activists and, and groups like the National Rifle Association which are actually opposing this. But the second part of his answer was actually, some people say they don't want politics in church. And he said, if you don't want politics, you don't want Jesus either. And he said, you know, he feels as a bishop that he has a duty as part of his, what he described as baptismal commitment, his ordination vows to uphold justice and peace and, and, and the human dignity of everyone. And he says, gun violence is an issue which is, which is blighting his diocese and his community. And it would be remiss of him not to speak out, even if there is a political cost to it. 
Nick Spencer, the director of research at the think tank Theos, has just published his latest book, The Mighty and the Almighty. It's a series of essays looking at how major political figures, from Tony Blair to Barack Obama to Vladimir Putin, have done God in their politics, and what this might say about Christianity and contemporary political power. I spoke to him earlier this week to hear what he had discovered. Which of the leaders that you looked into most surprised you? Which were the ones where their expression of religious faith in their politics was most unexpected? I suppose of the British Prime Ministers, the thing that most struck me was how much there was on and by David Cameron. Because I think his faith, it's probably fair to say, is a pretty vague, undogmatic, cultural kind of Anglicanism, I'd assumed there would be a few kind of general hand waves and non-specific statements over his you know, six years in power. And there was a plethora of material, really. He did God quite a lot, both politically and personally. It didn't radically change my view of his theopolitics, but I was surprised to find so much on him. Hmm. What do you think are some of the recurring patterns when you looked over this kind of huge variety of, of political leaders? Were there some kind of recurring patterns about how they use their Christianity in their politics? I suppose to pick out one idea is that one of the things that struck me was less to do with how political leaders do God and more to do with where they do it. What I mean by that is that there are certain cultures and contexts in which there is clearly a lot of political capital to be made from doing God, to use that famous Alistair Campbell shorthand. And that cashes out in various different ways. It can cash out in politicians um, politicising their faith in ways that makes you very nervous, or discovering a faith that had heretofore been conspicuous by its absence, such as the case of Donald Trump, or with figures like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, see constant high-level cynicism and scepticism about the validity of their faith. So in those instances, where there is a quite a thick Christian culture into which political leaders are speaking, it breeds a pretty animated, um, sometimes cynical, sometimes sceptical, sometimes manipulated response. Compare that to countries where there isn't much political capital to be made. Countries like Australia, um, the UK, I think, France would be a good example, Germany, sl slightly. And you tend to find um, politicians who themselves sit more loosely to their faith. They don't want to associate with it too much or be too public about it. And you also find a kind of a, a, a media class that is generally a bit incredulous and a bit incomprehending, really, about what that faith actually means and naturally gravitates to the assumption that a belief, therefore, dictates a policy. But it seems to me that we need to pay more attention to where politicians do God than we do necessarily to the way in which they do God. A lot is often made of the distinction between American political culture and British political culture when it comes to Christianity and talk about us. Some people talk about UK being a post-Christian culture in some sense. Um, and yet, as you point out, almost all of our recent prime ministers had, a, had some degree of faith. Is that something that you think people will be surprised reading into, realising actually we've had a lot of quite Christian leaders in this country? I think people have been surprised about it, not least because it's been a, it's been a point that has been repeatedly remarked on in various articles that have been written about the book so far. 
you have to be careful about samples of one, really. I mean, it is noteworthy that in the 35 or so years after the end of the Second World War, I think by my calculations, there was one really, I suppose, devout British Prime Minister, Howard Macmillan. Um, the others were maybe culturally Christian or they believed in providence like Winston Churchill or they were outright atheists like Clement Attlee. In the 35 or so years since then, of the six prime ministers we've had, I think you can make an argument that three, four, maybe even five of them have been believers or committed believers of one kind or another. Now, that's a striking difference, not least seeing as you'd expect to have Christian believers as prime ministers in the kind of the afterglow of Christendom in the post-war period, but in this kind of radical new secular age in which we allegedly live, you'd expect there to be so many secular politicians. Well, you can't draw absolute conclusions and it may be that the next 35 years completely changes the, uh, the, the makeup of our religious or secular prime ministers. But I think people will be surprised, and several people have asked me why this is the case. There's no kind of convincing reason, except perhaps to make the point that a number of Christian politicians, and indeed Prime Ministers have made, that their faith has drawn them into public service. Take that with a pinch of salt. They would say that, wouldn't they? But there might be something in it. Is there anything, do you think, in, in these conclusions and your essays on the British people in particular that is going to strike fear into the heart of the national secular society? Uh, you don't need much to strike fear into the heart of the National Secular Society. Giving Christians a slight reduction in parking in Woking seems to strike far fear into their, into their hearts. I come to the conclusion, really, that we're probably not as nervous as a people, as a nation, about politicians doing God, i.e. talking about their faith, even PMs talking about their faith, as we assume we are. The very fact that somewhere between 50, 60, 65% of people in England and Wales just call themselves Christian, even though it's only a label, suggests to me that we're not that hysterically nervous about it. We don't like people preaching, of course we don't, or ramming it down our throat, or other kind of self-fulfilling phrases like that. But they tend to be straw men. There's not been a Christian Prime Minister, at least since Thatcher, and she was an exception in so many different ways, who lectured people about this kind of thing. I suspect there is a greater nervousness amongst, um, again, the media and the media class, who you know, um, surveys show tend to be less, considerably less than average um, Christian, and probably more unfamiliar with basic kind of building blocks of, of, of the Christian faith, and certainly how those building blocks are used in politics. So there will be certain people who will say, goodness me, look at how many Christian prominences we have. We don't, as indeed one interviewer said to me, want our politicians to make their decisions up, make, make their minds up on the basis of faith. We would prefer they made their minds up on the basis of science. Well, forgive me, that's an exceptionally naive view of how the world works. People like that will be shocked and frightened by this. But I suspect most people will just take it as, you know, as a given. Mm. One of the things that's fascinated me over the last week as the election campaign has got underway is how Tim Farron has found it quite difficult to um, escape probing questioning about his own evangelical faith. Um, do you think this kind of encapsulates some of the divide you talked about between the media, um, often fairly metropolitan, liberal with a small L, perhaps more unfamiliar with faith than the ordinary quote-unquote Middle Englander? I think it probably is something like that, yes. I think it is, uh, Tim Farron talked about sin 
which is a brave thing to do, really. I remember probably five years ago, Ian Duncan Smith once used the word sin in a Today programme interview when he had been talking about welfare reform and there was a kind of a social media eruption around this. I think it's partly around an unfamiliarity with Christian vocabulary, with Christian concepts, so that words like sin or judgment or practices like prayer seem like importations from a strange foreign culture which we just don't understand. It's also, I think, picking up the Tim Farron case yesterday, actually a broader point to do with social conservatism. Um, I don't actually know personally Tim Farron's beliefs on, on issues of sexuality in, in any detail at all, really, and I suspect some of the media commentary was around trying to clarify that. But it also struck me there was an undertone of if you believed, say, that, you know, if you believed in traditional Christian, Christian um, sexual ethics, possibly, you know, tradition, traditional Christian ethics around abortion or euthanasia, that kind of thing, somehow or other you were suspect. Somehow or other those beliefs did not belong particularly in the mind of someone who purported to lead a political party or even lead a country. So I think there's a twofold thing going on there. One is an unfamiliarity and nervousness about Christian concepts, vocabulary, ideas, practices. The second thing is the kind of a, a shadow that seems to be passing over those who hold socially conservative views and aspire to public life. You mentioned at the beginning some of the um, non-Western politicians that we might be less familiar with here in the UK. Could you want to talk about what's a few of those examples and some of the most striking things that came out of those essays? Um, great question. So, I mean, uh, Lee Myung-bak was the South Korean Premier that we um, surveyed. He's a remarkable chap. Um, I mean, if you want an example of a Protestant work ethic, he's the man to go for it and really is a, a rags to riches story. So, in one sense, um, a very admirable, positive, uplifting one, and yet he became mired in scandal over controversies, um, particularly around payments to other big businessmen. He came from, I think it was Hyundai, if memory serves, um, to, 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 to lead Korea, to lead South Korea. So um, that was a, a great example of seeing somebody who uh, was fired by their Protestant faith um, and, uh, and, and the ethic that came with it to work extremely hard and achieve very much. And yet there was a slightly kind of worrying nepotistic element that, 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 that crept in there. Um, another example from the other end of the political spectrum would be Fernando Lugo, who was um, president of Paraguay and who was also, before that, a Catholic bishop. Very, very unusual. I think there's only, memory serves, one other Catholic bishop that has held such senior elected office, not least because canon law forbids it in the 20th century. And he's very interesting because he comes from, if you like, the completely opposite end of the spectrum to Lee Myung-bak and uh, is inspired and guided towards his political um, uh, role in Paraguay through liberation theology and through having been known as being very popular for being the bishop to the poor. Unfortunately, I think I'm right in saying he had at least four illegitimate children, and I don't think he was uh, drummed out of office through reasons of scandal, but I don't think the scandal helped. 
the reason I pick up those two, not least because I mean, they were thoroughly unfamiliar to me before we engaged in this project, and I suspect will be unfamiliar to many um, listeners, is that they're both great examples of people you are inclined to admire greatly, and then also put your head in your hands and sigh deeply. There is no such thing as a kind of an untainted reputation here, and we all have feet of clay. So the message perhaps to the church is celebrate the Christians that aspire to high office but don't expect them to bring about a renewal of Christendom or anything like that. I, I really think that is a message and um, even more broadly than that, don't seek salvation in politics. The state is important, government is an incredibly important job, but seeking salvation through it, let alone through the very fallible human beings who occupy those seats of power, is a hiding to nothing. And just finally then, anyone got any favourite quotes of the week from, from the Church Times? My quotes of the week come from an obituary on page 25 of our wonderful deputy editor Rachel Boulding, who died on Easter Saturday. Um, it's written by our other deputy editor, Glyn Paflin. Um, he said, We all remember Rachel's innumerable kindnesses, such as the postcards sent while on holiday, and often while not, which culminated in the arrival by post on the day before her death of a padded envelope of farewell cards carefully matched to their recipients. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find news, analysis, comment, book reviews and more on our website. You can also find our latest subscription offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music this week was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode and thanks for listening. Thank you.